Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome back Dr. Brendan McGuire. Oh, thanks guys. We're kind of going to we're going to pick up right where we left off last time effectively. Uh, the theme of our lecture last time was the, the way in which Byzantine political history in the Paleologian period helps to explain the eventual fall of Byzantium. Byzantine political decline, like any kind of political decline, it, it's a very, very complicated thing. It, it takes place over a long period of time. It involves many factors. Some factors were under the direct control of Byzantine rulers. Other factors were not, right? And so what we're dealing with is, as with many things in, in human history, something that's not monocausal, right? When you're talking about the fall of, of something great like the Byzantine Empire, it's not something where you, could, you can point to an easy or facile cause, right? But I think we pointed to several causes last time, uh, one of which was the sort of incompetent and directionless rule under certain Paleologan emperors throughout the 14th century. So young John V, uh, whom we introduced last time, he died in 1391 uh, after reigning as senior emperor for almost half a century. He had, he had quite a long reign as, as senior emperor. And by the time of the, of the death of John V in the early 1390s, uh, the fall of the ancient Byzantine state, I think we could say, uh, could already be foreseen. Uh, the Ottoman sultans by this point had surrounded Constantinople. They had crushed Bulgaria and Serbia. Remember the infamous Battle of Kosovo was in 1389, right in the same period. Uh, the sultans had made vassals out of Byzantine emperors. They exacted tribute from Byzantine emperors. They were able to call Byzantine emperors to join them on their military campaigns. Uh, again, their enemies. It, it was a humiliating situation for the empire. Uh, and the only thing the sultans really had left to do by 1391 was to finally dispatch the city of Constantinople itself, and then all of Europe would lie before them. Now, there was nobody in the world at the time who missed the gravity of this situation. Right. Uh, now, in no, in no small measure, this, the situation, the immediate situation in 1391, as we said, it can be attributed to John V's personal incompetence. Uh, John V had sort of continued Paleologan decline. He had allowed the last remnants of Byzantine standing forces to decay utterly. Uh, he meekly paid tribute to the sultans. He made a hash of things diplomatically. In particular, there are, there are historians of Byzantium who, um, who criticize John V for really humiliating him. Himself, uh, seeking help from every, everybody from Hungarian kings to the popes to the Venetians to the French. Uh, John V was a guy who was, um, he basically sacrificed the one last intangible asset that he had, which was Byzantine imperial prestige. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, you know, he, he, he inherited a wreck of an empire, and it was simply, it was a little bit worse of a wreck by the time he died. Uh, the empire's servility vis-a-vis -vis the Turks here, I, I think, is striking to us. Uh, the, the, what's left of the Byzantine Empire here, it, it existed basically under, under sufferance from the Ottoman Turks. Uh, the Ottoman Turks at this point, uh, even, even as we see uh, you know, the, the last remnants of independent Serbia, independent uh, Bulgaria uh, disappearing here, 
the Turks are basically calling all the shots, even for many of these states that appear to be independent on our map here. Uh, so, what ends up happening? Uh, at John V's death, then, in 1391, the Byzantine Empire is clearly at a crossroads. Its demise seems imminent. In fact, it's amazing, looking back on it, that it even lasted another 60 years. It's, it's a profoundly amazing thing. Part of it is because of the, the personal competence of John V's successor, which was Manuel II Paleologus. Okay, now, you might think that we attribute too much importance to individual Byzantine emperors. I think this, this is a point that does have to be addressed whenever we're talking about Byzantine history. Um, because in general, in the West, the, the great man theory, as it were, has, has not been in vogue for many decades. The great man theory of history, the, the idea that history is driven by, by the decisions of particularly influential or particularly gifted individuals. It's a theory that's been out of vogue for, for quite some time. Uh, the reason why certain historians of Byzantium, particularly Warren and Treadgold, uh, adopt something that it's almost a version of the great man theory, uh, is because this theory works for Byzantium better than it works anywhere else. Because you're talking about a state that was ruled by, by autocratic emperors uh, who, by their own ipse dixit, by their own initiative, they could immediately confront their subjects with new policies, new foreign policy, new fiscal policy, new religious policy, new religious doctrines, unions with the Western Church, heresies, new patriarchs. Uh, Byzantine emperors in general wielded enormous power. Uh, they wielded a, a, an autocratic power that it, it's hard for Western people to wrap their minds around. So I think uh, the competence or incompetence of an individual ruler probably plays a bigger role in Byzantine political fortunes than it does, say, for the fortunes of a modern state. You know, the English historian Syme had that famous line about no matter what the constitution of a government, there's always an oligarchy that sort of lurks beneath. Uh, and that's less true of Byzantium than it is true of other things. Right? So when we're not exaggerating when we talk about the significance of individual emperors, their competence or incompetence, and their, their personal qualities being relevant to the fortunes of, of the state. Uh, so what happens? Manuel II, Paleologus, um, Let's see. He inherits a state uh, that is on its last legs, as you can see here. He immediately resubmits the Byzantine Empire as a vassal state to the Ottomans. He accepts the payment of high tribute and, and very, very harsh, almost servile conditions vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Ottoman state. Uh, he was immediately called a campaign by the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid against Bayezid's enemies in southern and eastern Anatolia. Uh, so he's being called away from Constantinople, away from the affairs of the Byzantine state, to serve the Ottoman Empire as a, as a vassal. It's incredibly humiliating. In fact, this is so humiliating that in the year 13 1992, the Russian Orthodox Church stopped commemorating the Byzantine emperor in its liturgy. The, the prayers of the Byzantine liturgy that commemorate the ruler uh, had always included a commemoration of the Byzantine emperor, even in far-flung lands that were tied to the Byzantine Empire only through the liturgy and the faith. Uh, lands like Russia that, that had never been subject to Byzantium. They commemorated the emperor because they had received the faith from the Byzantine Empire. Uh, when you have Byzantine emperors going on campaign as vassals of the Sultan, uh, this is a point where the Russian church really begins to see itself as kind of coming into its own as the true leaders of orthodoxy and, and the czars of Russia as the true protectors of orthodox Christians. Uh, so you, you have no more commemoration of Byzantine emperors in the liturgy after this point in, in Russian and Slavic lands. Um, in 1393, the following year, 
we see uh, kind of a drastic illustration of, of just how powerful the Ottomans are in this period. There was a Bulgarian leader uh, named John Shishman who tried to throw off the yoke of Ottoman control. And uh, the Ottomans made an example out of him. If you're wondering, you know, could, could Manuel II Paleologus simply assert himself in this period and, and kick the Ottomans out? It's not going to work. What happened to John Shishman was... Um, when he decided he didn't want to be a vassal of the Ottomans anymore, the Ottomans said, okay, you don't have to be a vassal, you can be dead. So they executed him, annexed all of his lands, uh, and put all of his subjects under direct Ottoman rule. Okay? This is what happens to disloyal vassals in this period. Bayezid was a guy who, who didn't mess around. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Bayezid made one mistake here, though. Uh, I think his... His dealings with the, with the um, sorry, his dealings with the Bulgarians were sort of useful as an illustration of what happens to disloyal vassals. Uh, he went a little bit far after this. He got a little bit overconfident, and he actually pushed Manuel Paleologus to the point of desperate resistance. And this is what's going to end up breathing life back into the Byzantine Empire for a number of decades after this. Uh, the Sultan summoned Manuel Paleologus and one of the Serbian rulers, Constantine Dragash, uh, and and all and some of their followers. You know, summoned them to attend court uh, in Bursa, and uh, in a display of kind of arbitrary arrogance, he demanded that each of his Christian vassals uh, sort of testify uh, against the others, and so they all were, were you know, lobbying complaints against the others, and, uh, and then the, the sultan sat there and said, okay, here, here are the sentences, and he, he took a few sort of junior officials from the Byzantine Empire and from the Serbs, and uh, he had their noses cut off or their tongues slit, he mutilated them in various ways, simply to show that he was in charge. Uh, and in point of fact, uh, Manuel Paleologus actually expected to be executed here, but he wasn't. This, it, was just a, it was just for intimidation purposes. The Sultan then kind of sent them on their way. Uh, but this, this display of arbitrary arrogance, it actually went a little too far. It actually went far enough to push Manuel Paleologus to the point of resistance. Uh, and so what Manuel did was he got back into Constantinople, and he decided on a desperate course of action. Uh, he he wrote to the sultan. He said that he was refusing further summonses. Uh, he refused to hand over some fortresses and some lands that the sultan demanded. Uh, he refused to pay tribute anymore to the sultan, and he began to prepare for war. Of course, the immediate response was a 1394 siege of Constantinople, uh, which it, should, it illustrated a couple things, the 1394 siege. It illustrated, number one, that the walls of Constantinople were still impregnable. It illustrated, number two, that the Venetians, who were helping to protect Constantinople, were in naval terms far superior to the makeshift amateur navy that the Ottomans had. Uh, and it also showed to the West that Constantinople was in grave danger. And so, among other things, the response to this 1394 siege of Constantinople was a crusade, which is illustrated here on your map here. This is what we call the Crusade of Nicopolis. Now, if you can't see the map very well, that's okay. There are a few things that we should see on this map, though. Number one is, you, you see how big the Ottoman Empire is? Where, where is the Byzantine Empire? Can you find it on the map? You, you can't really find it uh, because it's, it's right here. Just that little thing I'm circling with, with the green dot. That's the Byzantine Empire right there. Um, Thessalonica was in Turkish hands at this point. Th Thessalonica had fallen into Turkish hands in 1387. Uh, you have some Latin principalities down here, the Duchy of Athens, Principality of Achaia. These are left over from the Fourth Crusade. They're just kind of there. Uh, and then some Byzantine territory down here in the Peloponnesus. You know, that's about it. All of Byzantium here is surrounded by Ottoman territory. Now, 
the, uh, <laughs> the other thing you should sort of see on this map is the fact that all of Eastern Europe is basically in reach of the Ottomans. Serbia was a vassal state at this point. Uh, the vlocks of Wallachia and Moldavia that are depicted on this map, these vlocks that we would call them Romanians, I guess, uh, but they're, they're sort of directly in the line of fire from the Ottoman Empire. Hungary and Austria are not out of reach for the Ottomans, even at this early date. And so the response from the West is a crusade. In 1396, the king of Hungary, Sigismund, led a crusade that we call the Crusade of Nicopolis. Uh, it involved a few thousand French knights joining Hungarian and Eastern European troops. Uh, they were absolutely crushed. They were absolutely crushed by the Sultan. It was one of these things where the, the French knights got a little bit too enthusiastic. Uh, they, they thought it was 1096 instead of 1396. And, uh, they started charging ahead and they all got massacred. Uh, so the, the situation is utterly desperate. Despite Manuel Paleologus being able to assert himself a little bit here, the situation is still utterly desperate for Byzantium. Let's not kid ourselves. Now, it's still desperate when 1399 we see further evidence of, of sort of Western consciousness of the plight of Byzantium. Uh, the king of France in 1399 was Charles VI. So Charles VI of France, uh, he actually sent a nobleman named Marshal Boussicot uh, with around 1,200 troops to Constantinople. Uh, and he simply he showed up there with his 1,200 guys. He rallied Byzantine spirits. He performed, uh, Marshal Boussicot, uh, he performed one important service uh, in geopolitical terms, which was that he reconciled Manuel Paleologus with Manuel's nephew, John VII. And that was important. And the reason why that was important is because uh, John VII had been basically an Ottoman pawn for a while. He, he, he was somebody that the Ottomans were holding in reserve in order to use, potentially to take the city, to take Constantinople. They could have wheeled this guy out and uh, actually provoked a palace coup against Manuel Paleologus. That was Bayezid's plan in the back of his mind. Uh, this Marshal Boussicot actually re sort of rescues John VII or, or convinces him that he's being rescued, takes him to Constantinople, reconciles him with Manuel, and uh, it averts at least one very drastic, very urgent threat against the city. Um, but then the next thing that, that Boussicot did was he brought Manuel Paleologus on a tour of the West. This is where things get interesting, because it's, it, it's a really interesting illustration uh, of why the great age of crusading was over in this period. Everybody in the West wanted to help Manuel Paleologus when he went on his tour. Uh, Manuel Paleologus was good-looking. Uh, he was handsome, he was well-spoken, he was um, great in social situations. He, he was everything that, that Westerners dreamed of when they dreamed about meeting a, a Byzantine emperor. Everybody wanted to meet this guy. He went to Paris, he met Charles VI, he, uh, he went to London, uh, he met the King of England, which is Henry IV at the time. Um, he traveled all around, he met with the Venetians and the Genoese. Uh, he sent embassies that met directly, his ambassadors met directly with all the Christian kings of Spain. Uh, his ambassadors met directly with Pope Boniface IX in this period. Uh, he was sort of the toast of Western Europe. Everybody wanted to help him, but nobody could. And th this is why the, the, the great age of Crusades is over in this period. It's not that people in the West had lost their enthusiasm for crusading. That's, that's sort of a, uh, one of those 
pernicious historical myths that you run into. The, the idea that, that Crusades had failed so often as to be discredited by this period. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth, really. Um, th- there was no Western king uh, in the 14th and 15th century who didn't want to recover Jerusalem, save Constantinople, conquer the Turks single-handedly. Everybody wanted to do this. Uh, but the political situa- situation in the West simply didn't allow it. Knights and nobles in the West by 1400 were, they were um, too deeply tied to their kings. The centralization of power by monarchs, monarchs who by definition are preoccupied with, with raison d'etat, this is what prevents the launching of a great crusade, a great passagium generale in this period. You're, you're just not going to see it. You know, so it, it's, it's really the evolution of Western European politics that prevents this. Uh, so what, what ends up saving Byzantine independence for another 50 years It's nothing that comes from the West in this period. It's something that comes from the East. Now, rumors had circulated in the West for a couple hundred years. Rumors had circulated about great principalities, great empires in the East who would come and rescue Christendom from the Muslims. Uh, And the idea was that, it was an ancient idea, that one of the Magi who had been present at the birth of Christ had returned to his kingdom uh, and that his descendants were still ruling this kingdom and that they would come and and rescue Christendom from its plight. They would come and rescue Christendom from Islamic conquests. And so when a great Turk leading a Mongol army showed up in Asia Minor in 1402, everybody thought that this was the guy. This was the great Christian prince who was come to, to rescue Christendom. Uh, in fact, he, he wasn't any kind of Christian at all. Uh, his name was Timur, Timur the Lame, otherwise known as Tamerlane. And uh, he was a pretty accomplished guy when it came to genocide and things like that. Uh, you know, he was, he, he was a guy who, you know, he, he was fond of leaving behind um, cities massacred, piles of skulls, rivers of blood, this sort of thing. Uh, he, he was basically an old-fashioned conqueror in the tradition of Genghis Khan, in the tradition, very much in the tradition of the Mongols. Uh, he actually cared a lot less about religion than most Christians and most Muslims would have in this period. Uh, and it was Timur, Timur the Lame, Tamerlane, who, after conquering Central Asia, conquering most of the Middle East, showed up in Anatolia and caused the Ottoman Sultan to panic. Bayezid summoned his army. He met um, Timur, uh, Timur at Ankara in 1402, and the Ottoman army was crushed. Bayezid himself was captured, and the Ottoman Empire was thrown into confusion. So all of a sudden, it, it's as though out of nowhere, uh, a, a deus ex machina, a kind of a guardian angel, shows up and rescues the Byzantine Empire from its destruction when that destruction seems so imminent. Uh, the Ottoman Sultanate is thrown into complete political disarray by the capture of Bayezid. It begins a, a period of Ottoman civil war. Uh, as far as Tamerlane is concerned, he, he ends up not being able to conquer the Ottoman state fully. Um, because uh, he dies. And uh, when, well, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting. He, Tamerlane, he was like an Alexander the Great type figure. He was a conqueror, but not a statesman. Uh, and so when he dies, he doesn't have successors who are capable of maintaining uh, his state or, or turning it into a functional empire or anything of that kind. Um, but he did his job as far as the Byzantines are concerned. He threw the Ottoman state into disarray. And so as of 1402, it looks like the Ottomans have a, a new lease on life. Okay, Sorry, the Byzantines have a new lease on life. Uh, in any event, the aftermath of the Battle of Ankara is interesting. Uh, one of Bayezid's sons, whose name was Suleiman, he engaged in some very, very skillful diplomacy here to 
to try to prevent the Byzantines from taking full advantage of Ottoman disarray in 1402. Uh, he made some massive concessions to the Byzantines, to the Venetians, the Genoese, the Hospitallers, uh, concessions that in actually included the restoration of Thessalonica here to Byzantine control. So Thessalonica immediately becomes the second city of, of the Byzantine Empire upon its restoration to the Byzantines. Um, and, uh, but all of this happens while Manuel is on his tour of the West. So by the time Manuel comes back to Constantinople in 1403, the whole thing is a fait accompli. He has to ratify the treaties uh, with Bayezid's son, Suleiman, which have been negotiated in his absence, uh, and he sees it as kind of a lost opportunity. He feels like if, if the Christian powers, Eastern and Western, had been more effective at uniting in the face of Ottoman disarray, they could have accomplished more. But be that as it may, right, even, even Manuel can't deny Byzantium at this point is bigger than it had been for decades. So... Effectively, Byzantium has a new lease on life here, but it's still caught between the Sultan's European and Asian holdings uh, and has very, very little to work with. Uh, so what does Manuel do? Manuel Paleologus, was, he was brilliant at um, keeping the Byzantine Empire on life support, basically, by taking advantage of ongoing Ottoman civil wars in a variety of ways. He played different factions off of one another. A lot of times he would have a, he would have a couple of Ottoman claimants you know, in the closet that he could pull out if he needed to start another civil war for the Ottomans. Uh, he, he was very good at this kind of diplomatic game, but he was getting old. And by 1421, Manuel was getting to the point where uh, he didn't have the energy to take care of the business of state anymore. Uh, he wanted to retire to a life of prayer. And so in 1421, Manuel's son, John VIII, was crowned as co-emperor. Now, John VIII Paleologus, he lacked much of his father's skill. And what John VIII ends up doing is he ends up immediately upon becoming co-emperor in 1421, John VIII ends up gambling. In an, he gambles big in an Ottoman civil war, and he loses. Uh, what happened was the, the Byzantines actually had captured an Ottoman claimant named Mustafa. And the Ottoman sultan at this point was uh, Murad II, Murad II who had succeeded Suleiman, who had succeeded Bayezid. Uh, so Murad II, what he was doing was he was actually paying the Byzantines uh, to keep Mustafa in captivity. So, and this is the kind of thing, Manuel Paleologus was good at setting these things up. So John VIII inherits the situation. Uh, where the, the Byzantines are actually getting paid to keep an Ottoman claimant, an Ottoman candidate for the throne in captivity. And he decides, the, the heck with this, we'll just stop doing this. We'll, what we'll do is we'll, we'll send him out into the, into the field of battle, support him, help him sort of rally some Turks against Murad II, support him in a civil war, and then if he defeats Murad II, if he wins, then the Byzantines will be sitting pretty because he'll be in our debt. Now this looks good at first. It's one of these things that you look back on in life and you say that it seemed like a good idea at the time, uh, but it simply didn't work out. Mustafa's army was crushed by Murad II. Mustafa was captured, strangled to death, and Murad was not amused. He was not in the least amused at this behavior by the Byzantines. Uh, Manuel Peleologus, the elderly retired emperor, at this point tried to get back involved. He feels like his son, John VIII, has really made a hash of things. And uh, he sends an embassy to meet with Murad to say, hey, we didn't really mean it. We didn't really mean to start a civil war. We're sorry. And uh, Murad said to the ambassadors, go and tell the emperor that I am coming soon. He was not amused. So what does he do, Murad? Uh, he ravaged Greece. Uh, it was while he was ravaging Greece that uh, Manuel Peleologus finally succumbed to old age and died in 1425. Uh, Murad besieged Thessalonica 
Thessalonica fell finally in 1430, and it was apparent at this point that the end was near. So if you're John VIII, you're sitting there in 1430, uh, you've squandered and frittered away even the little that your father had bequeathed to you here, and you're saying to yourself, what's my only chance, what's my only shot to save the Byzantine Empire here? And he knows it. He knows that the, the only possible shot to save Byzantium here is a great crusade, a great crusade from the Christian West, which could hopefully break the back of Ottoman power in Europe. Now, I think in this period, uh, these guys, it, it's not like they were naive. It's not like they were naive. It's not like they thought a great Christian army from the West could simply sweep the Ottoman Turks out of Europe and sweep them out of Anatolia. Uh, I think what they hoped for, certainly what John VIII hoped for, was that the arrival of a crusade army uh, would provoke a general rebellion of Ottoman subjects in Europe. Subjects who included Bulgarians and Serbs, many Albanians, all kinds of other Slavs, Vlachs, various Greeks, um, and of, you know, all, all kinds of people who theoretically associated themselves with the idea of the Byzantine Empire, who were actually under Ottoman rule in Europe in this period, the hope was that the arrival of a crusade army would provoke a, a kind of a general rebellion uh, that could actually expel the Turks from Europe. And so John VIII, in 1430, he got in touch with the papacy and agreed with Pope Martin V on holding a reunion council, a reunion council that would reunite the churches and serve as the prerequisite for this great crusade that was supposed to happen. Now, um, people in the West care about this stuff too. Um, Byzantine learning, Byzantine culture, was never more respected in the West than it was around this time. Byzantine scholars had been migrating uh, to Italy and to the Spanish kingdoms and to Sicily and to France, but especially to Italy and especially to the north of Italy. Uh, and there was great awareness in the West of the plight of Byzantium. This awareness was given a kind of an acute edge by the fact that Western European intellectuals were becoming more and more obsessed with classical Greece in this period. This is the rise of humanism, the rise of the Renaissance. Uh, and so there's, among educated men in the West, there's a great deal of sympathy with Byzantium and its plight, and of course, as always, a great deal of interest in reuniting the churches. Uh, so Pope Martin V wrote back to John VIII, and what he proposed was that the papacy would pay to have a, a, an Eastern Christian contingent of about 700 people come to Italy for a council. Um, Martin V envisioned actually shipping to Italy um, the Patriarch of Constantinople, the Patriarch of Antioch, the Patriarch of Alexandria, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, the Byzantine Emperor, um, anyone else who mattered, the Metropolitan of Kiev, anyone who wanted to come, he would pay passage for up to 700 people. And the idea is we'd all get together and have a great council and reunite the churches. Pope Martin died in 1431, and then events in the West sort of postponed this council in, in a way that there were a lot of things going on in the West in the 1430s, things that would take a great deal of time to explain. Uh, but one of the problems that the papacy is having in this period, to put it most simply, is that there's no one else in the West who's respected enough by the Byzantines to forge a church union. All right? The Byzantines know that for any kind of church union to be real, it has to, it has to involve the papacy. But in some sense, the, the prestige of the papacy had never been lower in the West than it was in this period. Remember, the Great Western Schism had just ended. The Great Western Schism had lasted from 1378 all the way up to 1417, really. Conciliarism 
as an alternative to the papacy, as a model for governing the church. It was never more popular than it was in this period. Uh, and Pope Martin's successor, who's Eugenius IV, finds himself struggling with a renegade council that's being held in Switzerland, in Basel. Uh, and so you have this really bizarre situation where the Emperor John VIII, he really wants to have this reunion council, but he's getting two different sets of correspondence from the West. He's getting correspondence from the papacy, he's getting correspondence from the Council of Basel, each of whom is claiming to represent the Western Church. And the Emperor and the Byzantines, it is kind of interesting how this all works, because to some extent their refusal to treat the Council of Basel seriously helps the papacy quite a bit. It really bolsters papal claims in this period. So finally what happens is the Council of Basel, not to put too fine a point on it, is, is brought to heel and uh, finally a Byzantine delegation is invited and they meet at Ferrara in Italy in 1437. And the Byzantine delegation was huge. It included a lot of very, very important people. So I think it's important to point out that the union which is forged here in Italy in the late 1430s, it's not like the Union of Lyon. It's not like the Union of Lyon where you basically just had an emperor forcing it on a reluctant Byzantine church. Uh, here you had all kinds of people taking part in this council. Uh, you had Patriarch Joseph II of Constantinople. You had the Emperor John VIII himself who came to Italy. Uh, you had the Bishop of Nicaea, Bessarion. You had Isidore, the Metropolitan of Kiev. You had representatives of all the other Eastern patriarchates. You had bishops from all over the Balkans. Many, many bishops came, including from areas that were subject to the Turks. Uh, and this council deliberated over church union throughout the three years, from 1437 to 1440. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an interesting way to carry out deliberations. Certainly, we can say this about the Council of, of Ferrara, and the, which moved then to Florence in 1439, so the union we tend to call the Union of Florence. Um, but it's, it's a council that deliberates at Ferrara and Florence for three years, and they keep coming up with issues and figuring out how to resolve them. And we certainly haven't come up with anything better since then, I would say, because their way of resolving differences is to just say, look, is there anything essential at stake? No. Well, then we can tolerate difference. This is something, I, I think this is, this is a level of ecumenism and ecumenical engagement uh, that Eastern and Western churchmen and hierarchs would be very much challenged to engage in today because they weren't just dealing in platitudes in the 15th century. It wasn't just photo ops. It wasn't just let's all hold hands and, and agree that we all want unity. They're, they're actually hammering out the issues. And when they hammered out the issues at Ferrara and at Florence, basically what everybody recognized is that there is nothing essential that should divide the Eastern and Western churches. The Eastern churches agreed not to mind the fact that the Western church says the filioque in the creed. The Western church agreed not to try to force the filioque on the Easterners. The Western church agreed that we don't really mind if you guys practice hesychasm. We don't really know what it is, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the Eastern church agreed that the papacy was the most important bishopric in the church. You know, it was basically, a, you know, you guys can use unleavened bread, we can use leavened bread. None of this is really essential. None of this should prevent us from reuniting the churches. Uh, it, it was an ecumenical moment, I think, that it's really underrated. <laughs> Part of the reason why it's underrated is because the, the, the union caused enormous strife and enormous division back in the Christian East when it was announced, when it was published, when it was promulgated. Uh, and some of this division was caused by the fact that one of the delegates at Ferrara and at Florence uh, was 
Mark of Ephesus. And uh, Mark of Ephesus was a Byzantine hierarch, not at all pleased with what was going on here. Uh, he felt like orthodoxy was being compromised. And when he returned to Constantinople, he became the, the leader of, as it were, the, the revived anti-union faction here. Okay, and, uh, and anti-unionism, it had major, major political uh, dimensions to it. This union was important. This union was important for the life of the empire. Uh, and you see it in a whole variety of ways. Uh, as soon as the union is announced in 1440, there was a, uh, one relative of the emperor, one relative of the Paleologan family, uh, who decided to attack Constantinople with troops that were provided by the sultan. Uh, it just seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, and, and he was using the union as a pretext. So this stuff, it, it's very, very controversial. It's very, very serious. The, the controversy that takes place within Byzantine society over this union, though, it's, it's something that it's easy to understand in hindsight. Uh, sorry, it's easy to, to misunderstand in hindsight is what I mean. It, it's easy to misunderstand it in retrospect. And we see this today. Ha, have you guys ever heard the quote um, that it's better to have the mitre, uh, sorry, it's better to have the turban of the Turks than the mitre of the Latins? ruling over Constantinople. Have you ever heard of this? Maybe you, maybe you haven't. Father Joseph has heard it before. He knows what I'm talking about. Uh, this is, it's a quote that's often repeated, but the source is not often cited. Very often today you run into this attitude, and, and I think it, it really does have to do with Greek nationalism. It really does have to do with 19th and 20th century events that have nothing to do with this period. But it's become the standard attitude among many of the Eastern Orthodox, especially among Greeks, that the Greeks in the 15th century, preferred Turkish dominion to Latin dominion, because Latin dominion was more rapacious, and, and Latin dominion was heretical, and the Turks at least allowed orthodoxy to exist, which the Latins wouldn't have done. You run into this attitude today in modern times. It was not the attitude at the time. It was not the attitude in the 15th century among the majority of Byzantines. And we know this because we find the source for this infamous quote, the, this quote that, that Byzantines supposedly preferred the turban of the Turks to the mitre of the Latins ruling in their city. Uh, this quote actually, it actually comes from the chronicle of Michael Dukas. And uh, I'm not sure if there's an English edition of it, but I think there is. I, I, I think there's an English edition of it somewhere. Uh, but the chronicle of Michael Dukas, very, very interesting source for 15th century Byzantine society. What Michael Dukas points out is that it was, um, it was actually Lukas Notaros, who was a Byzantine uh, imperial official, who, when he was told of the church union that had been forged at the Council of Florence, Lucas Notaros said that he would rather have the turban of the Turks rule over, rule over Constantinople than the mitre of the Latins. But Michael Dugas then goes on to record the reaction of the people in the city. And the reaction from the residents of Constantinople was to shout Lucas Notaros down in a crowd and to say, no, no, we would prefer the Latins to come to rule here because the Latins love Christ and they honor the Theotokos and they, and they honor our relics and our liturgy and they're Christians and we would rather have the Latins ruling over our city than the Turks if it came to that. And that was definitely the majority opinion among Byzantines, but we can see the union was controversial. Lukas Notaros' opinion is one that you know, we have to sort of categorize it as a minority opinion, but it doesn't mean that he was the only one who felt that way. Now, what about this promised crusade? Are, are we going to get the promised great crusade here from the, from the Union of Florence? Yes, we actually are. And once again, I think just, just like the Union of Florence is underrated, I think the, the great crusade that materializes as a result of the Union of Florence also tends to be underrated. Uh, we call it the Crusade of Varna. It took place in 1444. And if anything was going to save Byzantium, this was it. 
what ended up happening was Ladislas, uh, who was the king of, of Hungary and Poland, uh, he was joined by John Hunyadi of Transylvania uh, with a great deal of Venetian cooperation, particularly when it came to naval matters. And the, the king of Hungary and Poland invaded through by way of the Danube River Valley. And uh, they won a few battles, and they came tantalizingly close, tantalizingly close to setting off that general revolt of the sultan's European subjects that everyone had been hoping for. I mean, the Crusade of Varna, it, it, it has a bad reputation because it turns into a disaster, it turns into a failure, it eventually gets crushed by the Turks. But they came about as close as anyone could have come in the 1440s to saving the Byzantine state. Uh, it was the arrival of the Crusade of Varna, for example, which provoked the great rebellion of Skanderbeg of Albania. Uh, we had some Albanians here last time asking me questions afterwards. Uh, your, your great guy, your hero, Skanderbeg, he, he was inspired by the Crusade of Varna to start a rebellion against the Turks, which actually far outlived and outlasted the crusade itself. Skanderbeg was, was a, a tenacious rebel against Turkish rule, and uh, he, he was evidence of what a determined leader could do if the European subjects of the Sultan ever, dis ever got their act together in this period. Unfortunately, though, generally they don't. Skanderbeg is the exception to the rule. Uh, the Crusade of Varna was crushed by Murad uh, in the Danube River Valley. Ladislaus, the king of Hungary and Poland, was killed in the battle. Uh, Hunyadi and Skanderbeg, they tried to keep up the fight for a while. Uh, but once again, like we said, we're no longer in the age of the Great Crusades. It's no longer that easy for a, a great passagium generale to come from Europe, and the days of Byzantium here are clearly numbered. In 1448, John VIII died, uh, and I think he was only grateful that he died without living to see the end of his empire, which he knew was coming. You know, John VIII never had children. There was the, a, a tremendous uh, spirit of asceticism among the last emperors of Byzantium. John VIII and his brother, who succeeds him, Constantine XI, they were both not only faithful to, to the union with the Western Church, which they saw as crucial, but they, they were also men of great asceticism and prayer, and for that matter, celibacy. Uh, now, this is a kind of an interesting point, because there was a <laughs> kind of a, a terrible movie that came out about the conquest of Constantinople. I, I don't know if anyone would have seen it. It, it was a Turkish movie. Uh, it, it was, you know, and to some extent, it, it actually showed, it, it came out in... Uh, 2012, it actually showed how far Turkish cinema has come. Uh, very high production value, uh, some good acting, um, but uh, in, in this movie, <laughs> 15th century Constantinople is portrayed as a place of opulence and decadence and hedonism, and uh, the last rulers of the Byzantine state are portrayed uh, almost like... Um, Oh, no, they're almost like Umayyad caliphs or something like that. They're just, just flat-out hedonists uh, who deserve to lose their empire. And, and of course, th this is not the case. Byzantium was nowhere near as rich as it's portrayed as being in this movie. Would that it had been. Uh, they might have been able to fend things off, but they weren't. Uh, so you're talking about these last emperors in John VIII and Constantine XI, men who were, who were ascetic warriors, as it were, ascetic warriors in the spirit of David, uh, in the spirit of poverty and celibacy, really. So, uh, Constantine XI, then, in 1448, he begins to make preparation to do what he has to do to keep the empire alive. Uh, it, it, he knows the situation is desperate, uh, and it becomes more desperate in 1451 when Murad II died, and he was succeeded by his very young, very determined son, Mehmed II. Mehmed II was only, oh gosh, he was in his late teenage years when he succeeded Murad II. And uh, his intentions were very, very clear from the beginning. Uh, he did a few, a few different things. Number one, he built a, a fleet 
the kind of fleet that would be needed to actually besiege Constantinople. He also built some massive fortresses on the Bosporus, right next to Constantinople. Fortresses like this, uh, the Rumeli Hisara, is, is, um, it's part of modern-day Istanbul, really. It, it's, it's right there on the Bosporus. It goes to show you how close the Turks really were to Constantinople in, this, in the early 1450s. So they could build massive fortresses, massive fortifications like this. Constantine XI issued pleas to the West, pleas uh, that didn't fall on deaf ears. Pope Nicholas V wished that there was something he could do. Uh, he, he did something. Pope Nicholas V sent 200 or so of his own personal soldiers to Constantinople in 1451. The Genoese and the Venetians sent hundreds of soldiers each uh, and ships. By early 1453, there were about 3,000 Italians in Constantinople who were ready to defend the city alongside 5,000 Greeks, and they were facing off against 80,000 Turks. The fate of Byzantium was sealed not just by numbers, but by technology. Uh, as we talked about, the, the army of the Ottoman Turks in 1453, it was... Um, augmented by recruits from among Christian subjects in, in Europe. Uh, there were thousands of Serbs, for example, other Balkan Christian levies uh, in, in the Turkish army. Uh, but among things that the Christian world gave to the Turks that allowed it to conquer Constantinople was this, this famous Hungarian cannon that was used. There, there were a few large bore cannons that the Turks had in their arsenal here. Uh, their favorite one was the one particular massive one that allegedly it, it hurled rocks that, that weighed tons. Uh, I mean, uh, rock, balls, of the, they, they probably weren't as smooth as they're depicted as being here, um, but munitions that were actually capable of demolishing the great Theodosian land walls of Constantinople. Uh, the, this, this cannon w would get so hot when it was fired, and it was so difficult to load, that it could only be fired seven times a day. So along with the thousands of small-bore artillery and a few other large-bore ones, you had this great massive Hungarian behemoth that the Turks were using, which seven times a day would hurl a munition you know, bigger than a Volkswagen at the walls of Constantinople. And uh, the end was clearly near. The siege of Mehmed II ended up lasting for two months. And the final assault took place on the 29th of May in 1453, and uh, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary assault. Uh, the Italians who were defending the walls ended up fleeing when their leader, uh, Giovanni Giustiniani, was injured very badly by Turkish fire, uh, and seeing him being carried away from the walls on a stretcher, it caused the, the Italian contingent to basically collapse, and the Turks came rushing in through the breach that their cannon had made. And when this happened, according to legend, Constantine XI uh, took off his purple robes, took off his armor, and led his men out in a desperate suicide charge to die fighting the Turks in the armor of a common soldier. Uh, as the Turkish army uh, flooded into the city, it was subjected to a three-day sack, a three-day systematic plundering that was traditional in Sharia law as the, the limit of what was allowed to be inflicted on a city that had resisted capture. Uh, so Constantinople was plundered, its riches were stripped from churches and storehouses and the, and the houses of the nobility. The Italian quarters were uh, subject to particular atrocities because that's where a lot of the wealth was. Uh, there were two quarters of the city, uh, the quarter of the Fanar and the quarter of the Studius, that were allowed to surrender on terms. And Galata, north of the Golden Horn, which was ruled by the Genoese, was also allowed to surrender on terms. The rest of the city was subject to an unconditional sack 
It involved the, the massacre of thousands and thousands of people, the, the destruction of enormous wealth. It even involved fights breaking out among the Turks over who was going to grab what. And then when all the chaos was over, when the looting and the plundering and the rape and the murder and the pillage was over, finally, Mehmed II entered his city as a conqueror. What happens then to the Ottoman Empire, to Constantinople, and to the Christian world? The consequences of this event are absolutely tremendous. In the first place, the death of a 2,000-year-old state is always going to be a momentous thing. And this marks the end of the Roman state, the end of the Roman Empire. Even perhaps more momentous, though, for the time, is the fact that from this point forward, Constantinople was refurbished, repopulated, rebuilt, and turned into the nerve center of the Ottoman Empire. It's from this point that massive Ottoman expansion really begins. And as we said, all of Europe lay before them. So all of Eastern Europe, the Balkans and Greece, basically uh, virtually all of Eastern Europe that had ever been part of the Roman Empire, south of, south of the Danube, Eastern Europe between the Danube and the Mediterranean became subject to the Ottomans. Central Europe became subject to Ottoman raids and to the, an ever-present Ottoman threat. Uh, I always point this out to my students. When you talk about Western history in this period, there is a real danger of Eurocentrism because there's a danger of forgetting the fact that the one thing that hung over all foreign policy in Western Europe throughout the, the entirety of the long 16th century was the Turkish threat. Even Martin Luther was concerned about it. Martin Luther, who decried crusades as the, the, weapons, the weapons of a simoniac papacy, right? Even Martin Luther wanted Christian Europe to be able to unite against the Turks. Of course, one of my former professors pointed out Martin, Martin Luther was the single greatest source of disunity in Europe, and so it, it, it kind of rings hollow when he's calling for unity in the face of the Turkish threat. But let that, let that go to show you just how ever-present the threat of the Turks was in the minds of Europeans. European diplomacy, European politics were guided by this reality through the 16th and into the, well into the 17th century. Another interesting effect of this conquest, though, is I dare say positive, and that is that the, the overall decline of Byzantium and rise of the Ottoman Turks resulted in a tremendous, tremendous revival and flowering of classical knowledge and classical learning in the West. The Italian Renaissance would never have taken place in the way that it did if it weren't for the Turkish conquest of Byzantium. It brought an exodus of Greek scholars, Greek learned men, Greek clerics, uh, Greek texts, which are every bit as important, from the, west, sorry, from the east to the west. Right? And it fueled this rediscovery of ancient learning in the west with enormous consequences for Western history. As far as the siege and sack itself are concerned, they go down in Greek history and Greek legend. From this point forward, the majority of Greeks, of course, would be subject to the Sultan up until the 20th century, up until the First World War. And the legends about the conquest are legion. It was legendary among the Greeks that angels had come and taken some of the most precious relics and transported them to the Christian West where they would be safe from Turkish de depredation. It was, it was a legend among the Greeks that Constantine the Eleventh had never died that Constantine XI would return in a kind of a variant on the sleeping, uh, the sleeping hero legend, and that the priests who were celebrating the divine liturgy in Hagia Sophia at the time of the siege were not captured by the Turks, that they, that they took the holy gifts and disappeared into the wall, and that when Constantine XI returned and Greek Christians returned to take possession of their city, the priests would come back out of the wall and Christian worship would resume in Hagia Sophia. I pointed out one time to one of my Orthodox friends that when the priests came back out of the wall, they would actually be Byzantine Catholics. And 
that didn't go over <laughs> too well. <laughs> you know. Um, but it is funny because the, the Turks for centuries shared some of these same legends. Um, the, uh, the Turks believed that Constantine XI had not died and that he would come back. In many cases, uh, the, these legends were, were very, very popular. And we see evidence of it. For example, in the, in the early 20th century, there was a, um, a, a ship. And I forget to whom it belonged. It was either the, the German Archaeological Institute or the British Museum. But it was a ship that had a, um, a mummy on it that they had picked up, yeah, the, stolen from Egypt, and they, they, they were you know, shipping it back to Western Europe to put it in a museum. And uh, the ship docked at, at Istanbul, and the customs officers came on board, and they freaked out because they thought Constantine XI was, was getting snuck back into the city. <laughs> it, was, it was bad news, right? Um, you know, so so many, of these, many of these legends are actually shared between Muslims and Christians. But Byzantium lives... Byzantium lives to this day as far more than a political entity. Byzantium was not just a finite thing. Byzantium was a mentality. Byzantium was a worldview. Byzantium was an approach to spirituality and theology, which lives very much to this day. It's still very much a part of the world that we live in. You know, Byzantines, even at the height of their empire, tended to feel alienated from their government and to identify with their monks, with their icons, with their faith. And this is why when the government goes away, that Byzantine identity doesn't go away. It's with us today, it still lives, and we have very, very much more to hear from that part of the world. Thank you. Okay, our usual rules apply. A subject, uh, question has to do with the subject at hand. Make sure your question is one sentence long. Make sure I get to hold the microphone for you so that you know, we get a good recording. For those watching online, you can post your question. You said the Western European or the European kings wanted to help, mm -hmm. but they couldn't. Was that because they were too involved? What, what prevented them? Were they, and then when they did send troops, why did they fail? Were they poorly trained or just outnumbered or what training even was there? That's a good question. Um, you definitely didn't get large numbers of Western European troops going east in this period. Um, when I say that uh, European kings wanted to help but couldn't, uh, what I mean is that uh, you have things going on like the Hundred Years' War in this period, 1337 to 1453, um, which is very much sort of preoccupying for, for the kings of France and, and England, uh, kings of England, who at, at various points in the 15th century ruled much more of France than the French did. And um, so the, the, the difference, if you were to just put it in the simplest terms, the difference between 14th and 15th century Europe on the one hand and, say, 11th century Europe on the other hand is that you didn't have strong kings. You, you didn't have strong kingdoms in 11th century Europe. And so the papacy was able to wield a kind of, a, a, a kind of moral authority uh, that you don't see in later centuries. And it's, it's, not, it's not just the papal states or, or the pope being a secular ruler or something like that. It's the pope, through his moral authority, being able to do things like dispatch, dispatch uh, embassies that negotiate a peace, say, be, between the... the Plantagenets and the Capetians, uh, which allows the Third Crusade to happen, and whatever, and that, that's that's even in the late 12th century that you have that, uh, or for that matter, even going all the way back to the beginning of the Crusade movement, the, the way Pope Urban II is able to tap into uh, the peace of God and the truce of God movement, and, and the, the general way in which warriors in Western Europe were looking to do penance for their various crimes, uh, and to say, all right, you guys go on crusade, right? So what you have in the in the 15th century is a situation where the papacy 
cannot wield that sort of moral authority anymore for a whole variety of reasons, not the least of which is just the change in the political dynamic now, where if you're some knight, if you're some warrior, you can't respond to a papal call to go east and fight the Muslims because you don't have the luxury of doing that because you're under the direct control of a king, uh, which wouldn't have been the case 300 years earlier. My question, forgive me, it's a little trivial, but Byzantine is as an adjective, mm -hmm. meaning complex and convoluted and difficult yeah. to understand, and typically it's applied to politics. Could you explain why it has come to be as opposed to using other adjectives like uh, Western European or, I don't know, or whatever? <laughs> I, I can try. I can try. The Oxford English Dictionary helps us here. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary says that that usage of the term Byzantine with a lowercase b came from Byzantine art. Uh, so something being overly complex or convoluted or hard to follow or understand. According to the OED, it, that was originally having to do with art uh, and not politics, and then it later got kind of transmogrified. So. so it's difficult to understand from a Western perspective, right? Is that right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Mystical. Uh, you spoke last time about the impact of the First Crusade on the sacking of, of uh, Constantinople. Mm -hmm. I read after that that the impact was very, very big, that this was, this was the, one of the main causes of the fall of the Eastern Empire. Do you agree with that? No. Uh, no. In fact, that was kind of the, one of the main polemical thrusts of, of my part one lecture, is that the, the Fourth Crusade is not one of the main causes of the fall of Constantinople eventually to the Turks. Uh, and uh, there are a few different reasons uh, why I argue that, one of which is that the, the restored Paleologan Empire of the late 13th century, it had recovered very, very well from the Fourth Crusade. Uh, the, the empire of Michael VIII, Paleologus, was politically and militarily very, very strong. And uh, that, that strength was frittered away by other rulers for other reasons. Uh, and uh, no, I think the, the attribution of blame to the Fourth Crusade for, for the fall of, of Constantinople in 1453, uh, it, it's one of those things that you, you, ha you have to interrogate it right off the bat, right? It's kind of like when people say the Black Death caused the Reformation. And you say, well, okay, the Black Death happened in the 1340s, and the Reformation didn't start until 1517, so give me something else, right? And then they, they come up with something very facile, like, well, you know, the Black Death provoked this general questioning. Or something, and then, well, no, it didn't. <laughs> it, it, it just didn't. Okay, and uh, it, 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 whenever people assign blame to things that happened 200 or 250 years before, you really have to interrogate it. You really have to say to yourself, why? Uh, now, in the case of the Fourth Crusade being responsible for the eventual fall of Constantinople, uh, this is something that it, it became uh, it became a common opinion among the Greeks in the 19th century and the early 20th century. It was something that became popular during the, the rise of Greek nationalism. It was something that was cast into, it, it was given historiographical credibility by Runciman and others. Um, but it's really something that w when you interrogate it on either end and get down in the weeds and get down into the details, it really doesn't work. I mean, for example, the, the Fourth Crusade striking a mortal blow to the Byzantine state. Well, was the Byzantine state very healthy in the year 1200? Well, of course not, because if it were, the Fourth Crusade never would have happened. I mean, the, the Fourth Crusade, it was a Byzantine palace coup, you know, where one side in a Byzantine palace coup recruited these guys. And it, it was Byzantium's own political dissensions, poverty, and military weakness that caused the whole chain of events that led to the Fourth Crusade in the first place. Uh, but then Byzantium, 100 years after the Fourth Crusade, was in pretty decent shape. I mean, the, certainly the Byzantium of, of Michael VIII Paleologus was in pretty decent shape. And, and we can actually point to direct you know, moments where, where the decline was happening. And uh, it's kind of, I think it's kind of fanciful to blame it on the Fourth Crusade. 
Dr. McGuire, I'm going to take up the uh, deacon's invitation and ask for your thoughts on the meeting between the Pope of Rome and the patriarch of that fallen city, uh, which happened today. Uh, well, no, it, it's, uh, it's obviously a tremendous, tremendous moment. Uh, I think Pope Francis, my, my, just my personal read on Pope Francis is that he's a guy who is restoring the papacy to almost to the kind of global moral authority that it would have enjoyed in the Christian world in, in the Middle Ages. I, I thought it was a, a fantastic moment, for example, when Pope Francis, just, just through his moral authority as Pope, he was able to forestall what would have been a disastrous uh, Western military attack on Syria. Uh, he was able to call upon Christians and Muslims all over the world to fast for, for peace in Syria. Uh, and I think we're, we're seeing the same kind of moment here uh, in, with Pope Francis being in Jerusalem. Uh, he called upon Mahmoud Abbas and Shimon Peres to, to come to, to the Vatican and, and have, you know, have some negotiations in the Vatican that will be guided by prayer. Uh, he's trying to um, really, I think, restore the papacy to, to a moral authority that we would call, to use a kind of a, a modern Christian cliche, we would call it servant leadership. Uh, and I think this is something that appeals to the Orthodox very much. Uh, what does not appeal to the Orthodox is old-fashioned triumphalism, you know, e even the kind of triumphalism that, that maybe the Orthodox detected in a Leo XIII or a Pius XII. You know, what, what we see with Pope Francis is, is real efforts to, to go the extra mile, to be humble, and, uh, and maybe through humility and, and through imitation of, of Christ's own humility, uh, to be able to restore Christian unity and... and revive the church and reform the church. And uh, so I, I really can't comment any more on, on the details of the meeting. We'll, we'll see what comes of it. But we do have to keep in mind that world orthodoxy is on the, on the verge of having a, a great synod uh, in Istanbul. And uh, so I, I think the fruits of Pope Francis's meetings with Eastern patriarchs to some extent might become visible when, when we have the great synod. Orthodoxy has a lot of issues to figure out. Um, the, the Greek Orthodox patriarchs of, of Antioch and Jerusalem recently excommunicated each other. Uh, the patriarch of Moscow has been in and, in and out of communion with, with the patriarch of Constantinople over various issues. Uh, a lot of it has to do with, with autocephaly and, and the independence of churches and who has the right to recognize Orthodox churches as being autocephalous. Um, you know, basically, when it comes to the, the constitutional fabric of the Eastern Orthodox Church, they've got a lot of issues to figure out that they're not, you know, we can't necessarily get in there and help them with it. Uh, and so I, I think Pope Francis is extending the hand, he's extending the olive branch, and um, we'll see, we'll see what comes of it. It's striking to me that the Ottomans kept, kept, kept trying to attack and conquer, and mm. then it was just a setup to going further into Eastern and, mm. and Central Europe. So you've talked really about the mindset of Byzantium, the, mm. the leaders there. And so I wonder, what's the mindset of the Ottoman? Is it that they're religiously motivated? Is it they're imperialist in the, you know, Alexander the Great or Napoleon kind of sense? Or, or um, is it that they're somehow defensive memory of having been attacked at some point? What's going on with their minds, do you know? It's a very good question. I think in the early period of the rise of the Ottoman state, the analogy that I like is actually the, the Carolingian analogy, where uh, in order to keep things going, you have to continue to recruit warriors. In order to continue to recruit warriors, you have to have those warriors able to, to be paid. And in order for them to be able to be paid, you have to be conquering stuff. And so, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a kind of, it's a kind of imperialism. The conquest of, of Constantinople represented a dramatic shift in the outlook of the Ottomans. After conquering the city, Mehmed II announced that he was restoring the Roman Empire. 
And that was his intention. He, he saw himself as the, the successor to the Roman Empire. Uh, and so you actually see the creation of a bureaucracy, right, a, a functioning imperial bureaucracy that lasted for hundreds of years. Uh, part of that is that by conquering Constantinople, uh, he sort of inherited all the Greeks who used to work for, for the Byzantine bureaucracy, and he put them back to work. Uh, the Phanariote Greeks uh, became not only, for the most part, the patriarchs of Constantinople under the Ottomans, but also uh, the most important civil servants in the Ottoman state were Phanariote Greeks from Constantinople. So there's definitely a kind of an imperial outlook, an outlook of more Greco-Roman style statecraft that comes into being with the conquest of Constantinople. Um, oh, I should add, one final thing to add. I know these are supposed to be short responses, but <laughs> dramatic consequence, by the way, of the rise of the Ottoman Empire is uh, a, a change in the nature of Sunni Islam. The, um, the, the way that I would put it is this. Islam, of course, is guided by law. Uh, the law is supreme in Islam in, in a way that's, um, I guess, the, I mean, the easy analogy for us would be Mosaic Judaism or something like that. Where the, the law is supreme. Practical theology, moral theology is much more important, say, than speculative theology, as it were. Um, but the guardians of the law are the ulama, uh, the ulama especially who practice usu al-fiqh, uh, the, the jurisprudence. And what the Ottomans did was they made the ulama employees of the state. Okay, and when you make the ulama employees of the state, what you're doing is you're asserting state ownership of Islamic orthodoxy, state ownership of, of, of what it means to be a good Muslim, a practicing Muslim. And so then what happens is um, with the creation of, well, first the Ottoman Empire in much of the Levant, and then the, the, the rival Safavid Empire in Persia, is you have rival Sunni and Shiite empires, which creates, a, for the first time in Islamic history, a geographical boundary between Sunni and Shiite Islam. As the Ottomans persecuted Shiites aggressively, and the Safavids even more aggressively persecuted Sunnis. Uh, and so for the first time you get a geographical boundary between Sunni and, and Shiite Islam, which is still there today. Uh, this is why Iran is almost entirely Shiite. This is why Iraq is about 65% Shiite. It has to do with where the boundaries were between Ottoman and Safavid territory. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.